This week on Invisibilia, emotions. I felt at times that maybe my feelings were too intense for the situation. I had never felt anything like that before. We introduce a completely different way of thinking about your emotions. Listen in the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcasts. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Katherine Hahn, the actress, is starring in a new TV show. It's called I Love Dick. It's created by Jill Soloway, who also made Transparent, another show that Katherine's on. In Transparent, Hahn plays Raquel, a rabbi. She's terrific in it. She's compassionate, compelling, totally one of the smartest characters on the show. Hahn, though, was actually born Catholic. She went to Catholic school. She went to Mass, the whole deal. And she remembers being really into her faith growing up, like... I have a legit crush on our Lord and Savior into it. Not even kidding. I mean, I remember going to a sleepover party when I was third grade. There were a couple girls that we didn't know that were friends of the birthday girl from like another, you know, from her preschool or something. And these two girls were really, really, really deeply religious. And they couldn't go to bed without praying, like the two of them side by side, like on their knees, praying very deeply. And I went up and I like pretended to be as deep into it as they were because it looked so romantic. It's Bullseye. Coming up, I'll talk with Catherine about her roles in both Transparent and the new Amazon series, I Love Dick. She's worked a lot with Jill Soloway now, so why does she keep coming back? What I've always loved about it is that she has an ability to step outside and, and just kind of a little bit make fun of pretense or any kind of, if, if preciousness starts to like sink in at all, she has a, a way of diffusing it, which is always like, I really appreciate. Then I'll talk with Jason Zinneman. He's the comedy critic for the New York Times, the only full-time comedy critic at a newspaper in the United States. He's got a new book out about David Letterman. He's talked with a lot of people who knew him and watched hours and hours and hours of The Late Show and Late Night. And he came to appreciate the really particularly specific things about David Letterman. Like the way he makes jokes out of non-joke words. It's not just that Letterman finds words funny. It's that a funny word is enough of a joke. Finally, I'll tell you about Concrete one of the saddest, sweetest, and most honest superhero comics I've ever read. Seriously, Watchmen's got nothing on concrete. Okay, maybe it's got some things on concrete, but I personally prefer concrete and recommend it to you. It's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My first guest this week, Katherine Hahn. She's an actress She's been in comedy movies like Step Brothers, Anchorman, a bunch more. On TV, she starred in the NBC series Crossing Jordan. She was also a regular on Parks and Rec. Uh, she played Jennifer Barkley. She was the campaign consultant. Lately, she's been working a lot with the writer and director Jill Soloway. She was in Soloway's 2013 movie Afternoon Delight. She plays Raquel the Rabbi on Transparent. Now she's starring in another Amazon series called I Love Dick. It's based on the Chris Krause book by the same name. Catherine plays Chris, a New Yorker who moves to Marfa, Texas with her husband, played by Griffin Dunn. There, she meets Dick, played by Kevin Bacon. Dick's an artist. He runs an institute in town. He's also condescending and withholding kind of macho. But Catherine's character sort of becomes infatuated with him. She starts writing him letters. The letters are as much about her as they are about him. Here's a clip from the show. In this scene from the first episode, uh, the two of them have just met for the first time in an art reception. Hi, I'm I'm Chris Krause. Well, hello, Chris Krause. Dick, right? That's me. Uh, heard a lot about you, Dick. Love, love that you just go by Dick because usually someone would, you know, if one is born a Richard, they would. Rich, Rick, Richie, Ricky. There's so many. Just Dick. Is it possible that I saw you on a horse yesterday? 
Yeah, I have a ranch just outside of town. Oh. How, how big? Curious. You want to know how big my ranch is? No more polite to ask a rancher the size of his acreage than to ask a lady her age. Duly noted. <laughs> Catherine Hahn, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. Mm, thanks for having me. I have been interviewing people for a long time, and I've interviewed many, many writers and filmmakers mm-hmm. in entertainment. And the thing that I most am terrified of hearing is this thing that you hear all too often, which is, as far as I'm concerned, which is like, at the end of the day, I'm just a storyteller. And I feel like when you, when I have read or heard an interview with Jill Soloway, the creator of I Love Dick, what you hear instead is like, no, I am not just a storyteller. Here is the ideological framework of my entire, the ethos that drives this entire operation. Mm-hmm. And that is amazing to me and a totally refreshing joy. Yes. Uh However, I wonder what it's like for you as an actor who has this much narrower and more specific job of portraying a character. Yes, that's an, um, that is an awesome question because it it definitely did come up. I knew going into it that um, I'd never heard of the book before that it's based on the I Love Dick by Chris Krause. But obviously there is a lot of, you know, it's it's lauded as a feminist cult classic. It's inspired like a, so many women. It's it um, it's an incredible book itself. Um, so I and I also knew that she wanted to explore the female gaze who gets to talk and why, which is a quote from the book. Um, th- there was a lot of of big politicizing around this. So you're right as an actor. My job, like as Chris Krause had said, when she was writing the when she was putting to, when she was writing the letters to the actual Dick, when she, you know, back when this was, you know, she calls it autofiction. Back when she was writing these actual letters to this actual man named Dick, she wasn't thinking of it as a feminist book. You know what I mean? She just had an urge to put it to put her thoughts to pen and to I mean to pen exactly to paper. And um, so, in the same way, for this, I had to really like just ferret <laughs> into this kind of myopic tunnel. That was, you know, that was, you know, it felt like this pinprick light at the very end of it was Dick, um, this, this, you know, cowboy image played by, you know, Kevin Bacon in, in our show. So, yeah, that was the only I couldn't if I stepped outside of it, there was too much of a nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Also, I didn't want there to be and I don't think any of us wanted there to be any kind of halo around this the, about around this character um, that I just you know the the thing that attracted me most to the material is that it was just she was so without apologies so uh without shame so troublesome <laughs> totally contradictory and maddening you know hilarious so messy all the like delicious stuff as an actor something from to chew on and so i i just didn't want to you know i don't think any of us wanted to like put her in any, any sort of pedestal in any way because it would have detracted from like the guts of it for sure have you ever had the, uh, any kind of corollary experience or, or any experience that you drew on when you were thinking about or preparing for this to um, your character on this show's interest in slash obsession with, sort of odd specific obsession with Dick? Like, have you ever been that into somebody? Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. I mean, you start back at the very beginning and you think, oh, I wrote a diary. You know what I mean? Like, what was that need to have an addressee to put all of my most intimate thoughts? You know what I mean? Whose diary? I would certainly say I had a big old crush on Jesus when I was in Catholic school. I'm not going to lie to you. And that we we put that we put that into the show, but he was like, there's, he, yeah, there's some sex Jesus in the show. There was he definitely was a food for thought for my. I was in love. I mean, I've had you know, it's so intense. Wore a little bride outfit when <clears throat> I got you know for my first communion. You know, got married. Um, so yeah, that was a big one for me growing up for sure. Um, and yeah, there is just like it is. It's just an interesting, you know, it it is you just. There is something about like that looking um, for res- just res- not only just respect, but respect, but, you know, to feel attractive, to feel looked at and get that kind of approval from, in my case, as a cis, you know, white, straight woman. 
from from you know whatever whatever dick means and quotes around it then yeah of course of course many times i feel like i've read jill soloway talking about the reaction that she had that many people she knew had to uh reading the book which was i want to go out and make things and i want to go out and um do a, adult activities and um <laughs> i don't know when you say adult activities i imagine shuffleboard <laughs> <laughs> it's like what tax returns, <laughs> right? Exactly. <laughs> um, no, I'm I'm talking about rom- amorous, romantic, amorous yes. activities. So fine. Uh, I I think that w- one of the things that Jill Soloway's work has often focused on is um, reversing the male gaze, and part of that is about uh, or asserting the female gaze, and part of that is about the simple fact that you know women are taught to experience uh, sexuality culturally as their own sexuality as something that is almost received. Right. Um, yes. And so that your character, uh, Chris, is able to um, just assert her, like have a sexuality that is about her choice and her go- looking outward is a big deal. And that is deeply tied in with the idea of the assertion that one is an artist and not mm-hmm. just the subject of art. Yeah. Yeah. She wants to, she, she is demanding to, yeah, she's to drive her own narrative also, but you know, and she's a complicated character, which I love about it too, is that again, talking about the halo, like she's dismissive of other women's work. Like she's petty. She's really jealous. Like she's, I mean, she's, a, she's a total complicated, awesome mess. And that's a, also what I love about, Jill's work, what I've always loved about it is that she has an ability to step outside and, and just kind of a little bit make fun of pretense or any kind of if, if preciousness starts to like sink in at all. She has a, a way of diffusing it, which is always like I really appreciate because this is pretty, pretty heady stuff. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Catherine Hahn. She stars in the new Amazon series. I love Dick. I want to talk to you for a minute about what is special about your relationship with Jill Soloway because, um, you know, besides the fact that she gave you the lead in a movie, An Afternoon Delight, um, and obviously values what you do well, what is different about the actual process of being on Jill Soloway's set, whether it's television or movies, from being on the set of... You know, Anything an NBC else. sitcom or a a broad comedy movie or any of the other many things that you've done. Well, I've certainly had like many fulfilling creative experiences as um, as an actor, but there is something about this world because this is now my third uh, rodeo with her. For the most part, it's the same core crew since Afternoon Delight, same DP. Uh, this man, this man, uh, Jimmy Frona, who's uh, unbelievable. He's like and family at this point, and you know he's so instrumental to the making of the thing. I can't even describe it. And so, for the most part, the same editors kind of work on all of them, and so they know exactly what they're looking for and what to kind of mine. It's different because there isn't um, there isn't a division of like cast and crew. I can't describe it. Like usually, you'll start something in a normal set and you'll rehearse it. Crew will come in and throw down marks. And then they'll give it to the crew to light and then give it back to the cast so that there's this weird kind of like energy shift between the cast and the crew as the day goes on. And in this, it kind of everyone starts on the same like same kind of democratic playing field. It just feels like the great equalizer. And so everyone, you start the day feeling like you've set an intention of what we're all going to make together. It's the same like I come from the theater and so it just feels like common sense like – like, you know, the circus feeling like we couldn't, you know, if we weren't there for the guys setting up the tent, we would, you know, you know, we couldn't do it. The show couldn't go. So we all know that we're in it together. And that kind of like putting on a show in a barn feeling for some reason, you just the stakes go away from it. And you just you say so you feel like you're completely without fear. I don't know if that makes sense at all. Like you just feel like it's such a creative safety net. You don't feel like someone with a stopwatch freaking out, wringing their hands together panicking that we're not getting something like you don't ever start a scene thinking oh 
I'm going to get it wrong ever. Like you just you just start and you find it. I want to play another clip from I Love Dick. And um, this is also from the pilot episode. And Chris, um, I guess Catherine Hahn's character, is having dinner with her husband and with Dick. And they've just gotten it to the restaurant. He was already sitting there. And Dick is, uh, as we listen in, about to pull out a chair for Chris. Hmm. Um, and Chris is, uh, not unlike me right now, distinctly inarticulate. <laughs> oh, wow. Hi. I found it. Yes. At long last. The only one. <laughs> oh, thank you. Wow. See, this is a, a, real, a real gentleman. Don't you dare yank this out. Make me fall on my ass. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> That's a, just a dumb joke. Oh, wow. Here we go. They only have a tasting menu tonight. Hope you're okay with rabbit. Oh, great. I love rabbit. I'm a big game hitter. I've never seen her eat game in my life. Well, I'm not. I'm not. I don't eat. I'm not. All right. Okay. Not big, 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 big game eater. I'm a big little game eater. Like, I, I love. Cornish hands. That's that's pretty much as big as the uh, as big as the comedy gets in the show. Yes. Um, I don't know. There's a couple of. (laughs) Are you aware of sort of modulating your comic tone and comic instincts? You've done so much great work doing big comedy. And uh, you've also done a lot of work as a serious dramatic actress. And this was really, this is really on the edge of those things. Yeah, it's a different gas on the pedal, for sure. I'm I'm about to go start Bad Moms too, and that's obviously going to be like a different um, amount of gas. Um, (laughs) But but yeah, so this also just felt, uh, because the stakes were so, I don't know, it's like there were, it didn't sometimes you know when something's funny and sometimes you don't and i i or you're not aware until afterwards of how it is like how it was caught i guess by the camera and so that happened a lot in this in this series for me that i i sometimes feel like i'm pretty in control of laughs but in this one it was like oh like i didn't really i was out of control of some of the laughs in a good way i think but did you think you were funny when you started acting I knew I was a class clown for sure. And I think it was like I grew up in a house full of boys. And I think that that was like, you know, it was Fart Joke City, USA. That was just like how we, you know, like talk to each other. But I think um, I went to school not thinking I was going to be a com- – I mean, I you know, I didn't do sketch. I didn't do improv or anything like that. I thought I was – you know, I was always the class clown, I guess. But I didn't go into it wanting to be a comedian. Did you have any of that same reaction working on this that people sometimes describe or reading the book that people sometimes describe having when they read I Love Dick? For sure. I mean, I had never I had never heard of I Love Dick before um, Jill, you know, had suggested it. And I couldn't believe I hadn't heard about it before. I was couldn't put it down. I just, yeah, I think Jill has described it this way, and I feel really similar. Like, you just put it down, and you're like, I, you just feel inspired. You just want to make something. You just really want to make something. And, and it's just, that's an exciting, um, yeah, it just felt really bombastic. It felt like, it just, what I love, it just felt so punk in the way that it was like, here's this woman that is unapologetic. She is without shame she's so contradictory she's so maddening like you really want to like read the book through like you know your fingers at certain points it's so cringy which is like kind of how i love my comedy anyway and so bombastic and so loud and so vulnerable then there's a power in how like raw it is and how vulnerable it is that that there is um it's impossible not to feel kind of galvanized by it. It's also just feels somewhat radical that the the book I'm talking about, like it just feels somewhat radical that it was out of this like really embarrassing set of circumstances, like the failure of her film and, you know, kind of being the wife of a Holocaust scholar, like being financially dependent, just like not like just through these horrible, embarrassing embers of this like hor- horrible failure 
that she is able to use that as and as her like source of inspiration and it's like you you know she's not pretending not to she doesn't not own it <laughs> which i think also feels really good and there's a lot i think it's a really human thing it's like you know failure that it's through that like horrible abject failure that it's that you find sometimes the there's the embers burning in that that you have to have it we've got more of my interview with Catherine hahn stick with us coming up We'll talk about how after years of feeling all kinds of guilt, she figured out how to overcome shame. You know, more about her childhood crush on Jesus. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Buck Mason, a men's clothing company based in downtown L.A. Buck Mason has simplified the way men shop, making modern American classics to complement any wardrobe. Buck Mason focuses on the basics, crafting iconic staples like their best-selling Crew Slub t-shirt with signature rounded hem for a contoured slimming effect. Use the code BULLSEYE at checkout for $10 off your first Crew Slub t-shirt at buckmason.com. If you're looking for a new podcast to try, how about Planet Money? Give it a fresh listen. One thing people say about Planet Money is how much they love listening to it, even though they don't care about business or economics. It's just a smart show with great stories that help explain your world. It's explanatory journalism at its best, for a time that really needs some sane reporting that focuses on the big questions. Find Planet Money on NPR One or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the actress Katherine Hahn. She's been on Transparent, Crossing Jordan. She's currently the star of the Amazon series, I Love Dick. It's available now. Are you yourself a shameless or a shameful person? Oh, I'm recovering Catholic, so I'm for sure shameful. (laughs) Of what are you shameful? (laughs) I mean, I'm just one of those peeps that at the end of the night, I'm like, oh, God. How did I say, what did I, you know, uh, I used to be, and I used to be much more concerned with how it was perceived or, or, you know what I mean? Like, and just as I've become older, I've just certainly become a mother and I've certainly got, you know, a big case of the screw it's for sure. It just is less or less important. Like you're, you know, what becomes more important because I, I just wish that I had read this when I was, when I was 20 years ago, because it, it does release you from the good girl idea, you know, whatever that means. For sure, I spent a lot of time trying to be something that I wasn't or I've, as I've tried to describe it before, I think I like pretending to be normal instead of just like letting our own individual freak flags fly. <laughs> it's like that there's actually some that I, you know, wish I hadn't been trying so hard to meet some sort of totally unachievable, like, expectation that I put on myself, for sure. But also, like, societal, like, you know, that your worth is how you're viewed attractive-wise. All that crap that, like, you just realize is such nonsense and put on us from something else. Can I ask you about being a parent? Yeah. You you have two kids, Mm -hmm. right? Two kids? Two kids, yeah. Seven and ten. And um, I know because my wife does a podcast about parenting mm-hmm. that that especially for mothers, it's easy to lose your sense of self in parenting, mm-hmm. or it can be. And that seems to me like a a related theme to the themes of I Love Dick to assert your own identity in the context of a family and in, in the context of a world where, you know, in sometimes sometimes the world is defining you and sometimes you are defining yourself in relationship to someone else, which is to say your kids. Hmm. And I wonder if you ever felt that way about being a parent, that you, you know, that you lose yourself in your kids. Certainly early on, for sure. Like you can't even see, you can't see clearly. I would like have these phantom, I remember having like phantom these nightmares where I would just like wake up and clutch at my chest because I had thought that I was holding my son and he had just fallen off the bed. And he was like, no, you know, he was in his little co-sleeper, totally fine. But yeah, there was, it feels like a, a, a limb, like a phantom limb. Or I don't even know if your wife remembers this, but I, re- I really do remember having like phantom baby feelings after they were born, both of them still feeling like I'd feel them in my tummy kicking around. It's a trip. 
my I feel like my creative life. Sorry, I'm stuttering because I'm trying to word it. But I feel like weirdly enough, like my whole self creatively kind of I didn't feel like I was like really bringing my whole self to the table creatively until after I had kids. And maybe it's also because that's when I hooked up with Jill Soloway and we started working together and she saw something in me that no other director really had given me that chance to do before. But I certainly feel like creatively it's been, um, I am so much the richer for it. And I don't know why. Like it, I, I am, I'm, I'm still trying to like connect those dots because I, it does feel like I have. I'm grateful, and I feel like I'm like lucky enough to have an outlet for a lot of those feelings, where I know a lot of women don't. You know what I mean? Like I, I just, and I, I know that those feelings have to go somewhere, and so I. I can also understand like and, and have a deep empathy for people that lose them, that all that energy goes into the, the child because they don't have another uh, outlet for it. And so I get it from all sides. It's also like a really quick amount of time, which I didn't anticipate. That I mean, I don't know if your wife feels this, but that you're actually like, I don't know. They're seven and ten. And the thing that they never tell you that I was really surprised by is that they just need you more and more every year. Like, I always thought the hard part was going to be the real, real beginnings. And then, like, once we laid the foundation, but it turns out they just need you more and more. I'm so, like, I, I, it is constant mourning for me that of, like, missing the day that just happened. Because it's, like, you're, like, instantly nostalgic for, like, yesterday. Because it goes so fast. Like, I remember specifically, like, spooning my little boy when he was, like, three and being like, oh, God, I don't have that much more of these. And now that's, like, you know... Now he's like, um, can you close the door? I'm going to take a shower. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> totally understandable, but also like, oh, my God. That's just, just, that just happened. Oh, yeah, yay. Anyway, I don't, know if that ans- <laughs> I don't know if that answered your question in any way. But it is, it, yes, of course you can lose your, yes, of course. But I also think even if you didn't have children, like, and that was not in your cards, either because you just, for whatever the reason, you're a, a woman without children, which is, you know, I think that there is like that there is something about us, you know, a reckoning of a certain age of just looking back and being like for any of us, you know, it's also just like being in the 40s. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm here with Katherine Hahn. She's starring in the new Amazon series. I love Dick, which was released just last month. Can we talk for a minute about you being a kid borderline romantically in love with Jesus Christ? Yeah. Can you describe the circumstances, I guess? Sure. I mean, it's also, you know, Jill's used a bunch of, you know, of course, because it's the Jill and the writers. We This is something that we mined for the show as well for Chris Krause because we all found it, like, you know, very compelling. And there's so many, like, be, I can't remember the name of that nun. There's, like, a famous nun that wrote basically love letters. Yeah, no, I think it was just because he was, like, you know, really cute. And he all... <laughs> He was, he was really kind. He had like decent eyes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I remember going to a sleepover party when I was oh, third grade. And there was like, you know, I went to the school that was like pretty culturally Catholic, if I can describe it that way. Like it was kind of the cheapest private education, but it was also culturally like important to my family because that was like socially the network that they had. So they knew everybody knew each other. And it was but, you know, we went to mass every week and it was like, a you know, when I was confirmed. I went, you know, I went through all of it. But in third grade, I went to this to a sleepover at my friend's house. And there were a couple girls that we didn't know that were friends of the birthday girl from like another, you know, from her preschool or something. And these two girls were really, really, really deeply religious. And they couldn't go to bed without praying, like the two of them side by side, like on their knees, praying very deeply. And I went up and I like pretended to be as deep into it as they were because it looked so romantic. Like they were just so, so I was like, you know, hands together, like look, like really furrowed brow, just like really talking to Jesus, like not really knowing what was going on, but just knowing that it. Lo- I was really into that amount of passion and that amount of, just that amount of passion <laughs> and that amount of faith, like was pretty intense to me, even though like half of me was kind of like my knees hurt. <laughs> 
Catherine Hunt, I'm so I'm so grateful to you for coming on the show. Thank you so much for doing this. Oh my God, this was really really fun. Uh, thank you, Catherine Hahn. Check her out in the brand new series I Love Dick. It's on Amazon now. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My next guest is Jason Zinneman. He's a writer and a critic. For years, he was a theater writer. Now he covers comedy at the New York Times, the country's only full-time newspaper comedy critic. It's also written for Slate and Vanity Fair, among other outlets. He's got a new book out. It's called Letterman, The Last Giant of Late Night. And it's more than a biography of David Letterman, one of the funniest TV hosts of all time. Okay, I'm just going to say it, the funniest TV host of all time. It's a deep and critical study into what makes David Letterman work as a performer, to some extent, as a man. Before we get into my conversation with Jason, why don't we listen to a little bit of classic Dave. Here he is bothering people while wearing one of those headsets at the uh, fast food drive-thru. Uh, what do you want to eat today? Three light chicken soft tacos. How about a burrito? No, thanks. How about a big burrito? No, thanks. Yeah, how about the biggest damn burrito you ever laid eyes on in your life? You know, this... How about a burrito so damn big we got to strap it to the roof of your car? How about that, sir? Would you like that? <laughs> Welcome to Taco Bell. Thank you. Do you have any hair nets? No. Because we think that we're going to get like a surprise visit later on from the Board of Health. Jason Zinneman, welcome to Bullseye. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, thanks for having me. I'm excited to do this. So... Your book is as much a book of criticism as it is a biography. And I wonder if you can explain something that I've never been able to explain in my entire life, which is what is different about David Letterman? What is different about David Letterman? I mean, I think there, that's a complex there's, – there's many things that are different about David Letterman. I think a few things stand out. David Letterman, when he was born – um, his parents didn't have a television set. His first love was radio. And I think that is one thing that really distinguishes him from his peers um, is that Letterman has a love of language and a sensitivity to language that is uh, can date back to his time in radio. Um, while his show has was also kind of visually innovative, one constant through his whole career is he's a, a magnificent conversationalist, a great talker, somebody who uh, appreciates the humor of words. I think it was a James Downey, who's a you know, great longtime SNL writer who um, worked for Letterman, who said something to me where he said it's not just – he was comparing the sensibility of SNL to late night. And he was saying it's not just that Letterman finds words funny. It's that a funny word is enough of a joke. <laughs> um, and that's really, when you think about it, that's pretty bold. Like, you know, and that, and you, any true Letterman fan knows what he means by that. Yeah. He'll have a punchline to the joke, but what he really likes, he'll get a phrase like, you know, beauty is my business. And he'll repeat it over and over again as kind of, until it turns into a kind of incantation and he'll, he'll, he'll roll around in his mouth. And there's something about it. It's like he turns this, the language of television into a kind of poetry. I, I think... He became um, – his show became as much about his personality as um, the stars of the material. It became about him talking about what he was irritated about that day and turning some mundane story into some really operatic bit of comedy. And I think in, a, in an interesting way, um, people really got to know him. Um, and, he, and even though he's a very guarded guy – I think over 33 years, his show was very revelatory. Uh, and I think it was, you know, at, at the core, he he, was, he did what all great artists do, which is uh, reveal himself through his work. One of the things that has always been most amazing to me about David Letterman is the way that he can sit comfortably on the limit between sarcasm or ironic remove and sincere engagement. That is something that I feel like I've never seen anyone else do so ably. And, and there's an arc to that. I think, you know, in his early career, he was, you know, famous for his relentless sarcasm. And then as he became known for that, it, the sarcasm became and the, the kind of layers of irony became 
kind of more ornate. And they, uh, you know, his jokes, I, you know, as I, I write in the book, sometimes if you look at some of those monologue jokes, you can kind of, if you were to map them like you'd map a sentence, they would be kind of concentric circles uh, of, 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 you know, making fun of the joke bombing, then making fun of himself, making fun of the bombing. And, and, and you had to kind of watch Letterman for a long time to kind of be able to decipher the layers of irony. I think later in his career... When he um, shows a more sincere side, um, like after 9-11, most famously, it has a bigger impact um, because you've seen this guy um, be ironic for so long that to see him then be sincere really means something. But because if you watched him long enough, you could understand what he meant when he was making fun of GE, um, even though he was often saying it in an incredibly indirect way. Um, so to take one example, in the writer strike in 1988, he's upset. Letterman has a history of, of, uh, of labor support. He, was, you know, he, uh, he went on strike with the writers of the comedy store in the late 70s, and he went back on the air, which I'm sure he was uncomfortable with, without his writers. At this time, the head of NBC sent a, a toaster as a kind of joke. And Letterman was, re- you know, he was kind of cranky about the strike, and he took the toaster and he didn't, you know, rail against the NBC and he didn't – he just t- said the head of NBC gave him this toaster. I think it was an anniversary present. He put the toaster on his desk. He put some toast in and he made toast. He sat there and he waited and he made toast. And it was, it was in its own way this sort of, you know, subversive kind of punk uh, message but very clear to anyone who watched what, what he meant by it. There is also a kind of that there's a very sincere fondness in him that never leaves, just as, you know, when he chucks a watermelon off of a roof. Part of the joke is, wouldn't it be dumb if we chucked a watermelon off a roof? But a significant part of the joke is it is fun to chuck a watermelon off of a roof. (laughs) Yes, yes. No, you're you're you're, that's completely true. I think it operates on both levels and and. And even the, you know, the, the, the mockery of television. I mean, on some level, right, he, a lot of his early shows are making fun of the conventions of television and making fun of show business. And yet he's clearly a part of show business. I, I think the, the throwing the watermelon off the – which is, you know, a, there was a whole genre of stuff like that, like the, uh, the steamroller, which is actually my favorite. That, that's primal. You know, there's something like that, which is like, you know, no, no comedy analyst is going to intellectualize that sufficiently. <laughs> it's just like it's any any kid understands the pleasure of throwing a watermelon off a roof more than any critic ever will. You're listening to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with Jason Zinneman. His new book is called Letterman, The Last Giant of Late Night. It's a biography of the greatest television host of all time. I think I can say that on NPR, right? My show? Yeah, I can say that. Greatest television host of all time. My era when I was most avidly watching Letterman, probably as a, in my late teens and early 20s, they were doing Will It Float, a segment <laughs> that featured 75 backup dancers behind a giant tank, and all they did was put something in the tank and find out whether it floated. Right. <laughs> so that does not have that much primal interest. I don't know. I don't know. I, gotta, <laughs> I think you, you, you bring up a good, a really great point, which is which is the bigger audience, the one that likes the fact that look at this ridiculous thing I'm doing or the is it there? I, mean, I think let's look at the most uh, popular Letterman bit, Stupid Petrix, okay? That it's in the name, right? And even Steve Martin in my book says, like, if it, Petrix would never have worked. Uh, he says, I don't want to see Petrix, but stupid Petrix, that's something. At the same time, look, there is no more storied um, and cliche showbiz genre than the animal act. You know, if we went back 100 years to vaudeville, we would – there's there's something about it. And everyone knows the animal's going to upstage you. Now, is the reason that people liked stupid Petrix because of that it was Letterman smirking and the stupid – or was it because – uh, you know, that, that uh, people love pets. Now, of course, it's both. But anyone who looks on YouTube today, I think, could tell you which is has the bigger audience. I think the same thing is true <laughs> for what will afloat. We'll have more of my conversation with Jason Zinneman after a break. We'll talk about one of maybe my favorite late night sketches of all time. Definitely 
the one that my wife and I are most likely to reference to each other over breakfast. It's the one where Chris Elliott is dressed up as Marlon Brando, and he does the banana dance. And he goes, bananas. If you haven't seen it, you should just you should turn off the radio and go just go watch it. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for NPR and the following message comes from Little Passports. Check out Science Expeditions, the new educational subscription that kids and parents love. Monthly packages arrive packed with activities and experiments about science, technology, engineering, and math with themes like rockets and solar power. In the first month, your child will extract DNA from a strawberry while learning about forensic science. Learn more at littlepassports.com bullseye and save 40% off your first month with the coupon code bullseye. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. We'll get back to my conversation about David Letterman with Jason Zinneman in just a minute. But before we do that, let's talk about Pop Rocket. It's our sister show here at Maximum Fun. Pop Rocket is like, uh, it's a lot like Bullseye, but chattier. It's got a sort of funny, diverse, brilliant panel. Uh, Karen Tongson, who's a college professor. Margaret Wappler, who's a newspaper and magazine writer. And a brilliant and hilarious host, Mr. Guy Branham, stand-up comedian, the host of True TV's talk show, The Game Show. Hey, Guy, what's popping on Pop Rocket this week? Hey, Jesse. This week we're going to be talking about the new DC movie, Wonder Woman, starring Gal Gadot. Uh, can DC turn it around and make us a good superhero movie? God help us. Let's hope so. I hope so. And seven-year-old syndicated television rerun watching me hope so as well. Pop Rocket. Grab it wherever you get your podcasts. A good thing to search for. Here's a hot tip. Pop Rocket. You're listening to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne, talking with Jason Zinneman. He literally wrote the book on David Letterman. It's called Letterman, The Last Giant of Late Night. It's out now. I want to play a little bit of David Letterman as a kid, or at least as a young adult. Um, he was a college radio host. And he, even when he was in college, there were parts of his persona that had shown themselves. Let's hear David Letterman, uh, bearded then as he is now, in 1969 as a college student at Ball State University in Muncie, Indiana. On the Ball State University campus station, WAGO, Boss Radio 57, Wagner Hall, Muncie. 22 this week in the top 30 plus 15, the flirtations, and nothing but a heartache. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name's Dave Letterman, and you're listening to the Dave Letterman radio program, the radio program which asks a question. Oh, excuse me, there's the telephone. Good evening, WAGO, may I help you? You're looking for a Gaboon a Viper? Well, have you tried over in the library? <laughs> well, the lighting's much better over there. We'll see you a little later, clown. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I'm not going to take any more of these crank phone calls. <laughs> Something about the hooded merganser. Anyway, this is all you have to do to win a swell prize tonight here at WAGO. Now, correctly identify this sound. Did you hear that? I'll do it once again. For those of you who had to get up out of the sick bed to get closer to the radio. Did you hear that? Ladies and gentlemen, it's time to place our phone call. See if someone can correctly identify the mystery noise. And there it is. Excuse me here. I'll just uh, place the call now. (laughs) It's pretty funny. (laughs) Nice piece of business. It's very funny. It's very, and that's actually a really, that's really an interesting clip. Um, actually, the woman who he was, he, he uh, was going to be the first caller there was his first wife. And he, you know, if you listen to the language there, gaboon viper, you know, the, he, again, he loves these funny words. But, but that was, Letterman got his start, his first broadcasting gig was on his college radio station, which didn't play rock music. And he got fired because he kept making up stories, uh, making up, you know, fake biographies and fake news stories. It was, like, when a, he got it was fired, like classical music where you're supposed to say a little fact about the composer. You know, you say, well, uh, you know, interestingly, the bassoon in that record... <laughs> <laughs> and that recording of the Berlin Philharmonic, right? And he was just making them up. Exactly. He was making it up. And then they, they he got fired and they brought him back. And then he, he got back on news and, he, and that was a disaster. He made things up there. And so when he left, 
he started working or uh, doing a show from an all-male dorm. So what we just heard was only heard within a dorm. <laughs> that what he's parodying in that voice is actually a very unusual clip because usually Letterman is is in his own voice, but he's parodying Boss Radio, which was a kind of style of DJ, rock DJ that was popular back then. So he was sort of he went from making fun of this stodgy classical station to then once he gets on a rock station where he could say anything he wants because he's only talking to all, all men in a, in a small norm, making fun of of rock DJs. So again, the, I think I guess the third thing you could you could say that has stayed constant for Letterman through his whole career is this what I call a um, you know an irreverent instinct is. That that he will make fun of whatever world he is in at that moment. He stayed in Indiana for quite a while and went through a number of jobs in broadcasting. And most notably, he worked as a television weatherman. This is hard to imagine. <laughs> like, how did he... <laughs> what was he doing as a weatherman? Well, it was. it's actually a pretty... It's, I did some research on this, there there was a kind of dawn of the era, I think it was called Happy Talk, where the, you know, straight news in, in local TV, the anchors were encouraged to be jokey and to kind of banter with each other. Now we take this for granted, but this was a this was a thing back then. And having like a wacky weatherman, which we all think of as sort of like a cliche now, um, was a relatively new thing. There's, a, there's several points in the book where Letterman's career could have gone in a dramatically different direction. And one of which is that he was the weekend weatherman. He wasn't the main weatherman, and he be- and he became famous for the first time, uh, famous in Indiana because of the weather. He had a pretty elaborate broadcasting career on many different platforms, but his his the thing he became really known for, if you talk to people there, was his his uh, jokes on the weather. But when the job for the main weatherman came up, he applied and didn't get it. And if he did get it, that was a that was a really big job. Maybe he never would have gone. To, or he would have gone later to L.A. and the timing would have been off. Who knows? Let's hear David Letterman reporting the weather on WLWI as a 28-year-old. And in, in what we're about to hear, he notices a mistake on the satellite map. Uh, most of Missouri is under a flash flood watch. The same holds true for Iowa and uh, flooding all over. In fact, uh, portions of uh, Indiana at one time yesterday were under a flash flood warning. But all of that seems of little importance once you take a look at the cloud cover photograph made earlier of the United States today. And I think you'll see that once again we've fallen to the prey of political dirty dealings. And right now you can see what I'm talking about. The higher-ups have removed the border between Indiana and Ohio, making it one giant state. Personally, I'm against it. I don't know what to do about it. <laughs> Personally, I'm I against lo- I- it. I love that. I love that. How great is that? Also, I mean, I hate to be like a nerd about language about this, but besides the joke being great and you can find it and the person I guess it, I just love like we've fallen prey to personal dirty dealings. You know, I think Meryl Marco, I quote her saying when she met Letterman, you know, the first thing she she liked about him was his his uh, noun choices. You could hear it in that stuff. That's the, the difference between a funny guy and a, and, a, and someone who really is a great comedian has to do with picking exactly the right funny word. And so that I mean that weather stuff that you know he he really made his name on. I interviewed Harvey Pekar once uh, before he <laughs> passed away, and I couldn't be a bigger admirer of Harvey Pekar's work. I just love the heck out of American Splendor, the comic that he wrote for decades, and. Picar was a pretty regular dude that was part of his shtick as well as part of who he was. His comic was a, you know, an underground success that that told stories from his life and from other people's lives of regular people's stuff. Gave some grandness and dignity to regular people's stuff. He came on Letterman regularly for many years in the early 1980s as a crankus, mm-hmm. essentially. An antagonist to David Letterman. To what extent were these people that were being booked on the show who were fighting with David Letterman, to what extent were those bookings ironic? 
Huh, huh, huh. Well, it's a great question, and it depends who you talk to. I mean, Picar, the person responsible for Harry Picar is Steve O'Donnell, who was the head writer from 1984 to 1930 and is, you know, a, a, a brilliant comic mind. Um, and he was from um, Cleveland, which is where Precar is from. And so he and he is a genuine fan of Harvey Picar. You know, he uh, he loved Harvey Picar, you know, m- made the case that he'd be great for the show. It was also clear that Letterman in that period became known for having these oddball antagonistic guests on like Howard Stern and Sandra Bernhardt and that nobody else had on. And that also, you know, in an age before YouTube, but Picar is a fascinating case because he became famous from Letterman and he his antagonism, according to some people on staff, became a kind of shtick. You know, he'd come on like Picard, he'd be like, oh, these phonies, and, and then he the audience loved it and he gave them more of it until there's one sort of famous episode where he's really pushing Letterman on some labor issue. When the rare Letterman is you know incredibly poised and keeps us cool. But Letterman uh, sort of lost his temper and and he made reference to your little comic book. I won't come back unless you really ask. No, you're not coming back yeah, at all, Herbie, all right. because I we've given care. no, no, we've given that's... you many, many chances to come on this oh. show and talk about things that we thought would Dave, be of I general was, interest to I people. And also for... to promote your little Mickey Mouse magazine Look, here, Dave, your little your little newsletter, your little clubhouse uh, Dave, uh, fun, rainy day fun for boys and girls, your little weekly reader that, deal here. Dave, but one, but one of the things about Picar at the time was that I think became telling as the show continued through the decades was that Picar, as far as I could tell from talking to him, he still – and this I probably talked to him in 2004 or something. He had no idea where he stood with the show or with Letterman. He couldn't tell. He couldn't tell you how – he said, you know, I was playing up the things that I thought they wanted me to play up, but – I don't know if he was mad at me, really. And that became, in some ways, the leitmotif of the David Letterman show is people trying to figure out who David Letterman really was, even people who were like his head writer. Yes, yes. Oh, and and, and people, and when they guessed wrong, like Crispin Glover, you know, then they, Letterman just walked off the stage. I mean, you know, Crispin Glover thought he was just going to do what Andy Kaufman did and play a character and try to kick Letterman, and and uh, and he made the wrong guess. I want to for, play for a little bit of Chris Elliott on the show. Chris Elliott, of course, the brilliant uh, writer and actor who started on the show as an NBC page. David Letterman figured out, or he offered to David Letterman, that his father was Bob Elliott of Bob and Ray, of which Letterman was a fan. And he ended up working on the show, eventually became a writer on the show uh, and was in some ways an outsider on a writing staff where the folks generally came from places like Saturday Night Live and the Harvard Lampoon. Elliot was a huge voice on the show in the middle of the 1980s. And the characters that he played were often very hostile, actively hostile, but also he never submerged himself into a character. (laughs) Mm-hmm. He he always seemed like like Letterman. He always seemed to be both in the thing and out of the thing at the same time. And he played Marlon Brando. His impression of Marlon Brando isn't uh, on the waterfront. I could have been a contender, whatever. It's slightly broken down, old, still thinks of himself as grand Marlon Brando. And this is him demonstrating. He we walked on stage with a paper bag full of bananas. <laughs> places them on the stage says he's going to demonstrate his famous banana dance oh thank you very much ladies and gentlemen and may i be so bold as to interrupt your little late night with larry king live which i was watching in the green room it's very funny now this evening ladies and gentlemen the fellas ringo and the fellas and i have put together a little something it's uh called my famous banana dance um and it's something that I uh, perform on my island regularly and I perfected some years back. And before we perform it, I'd just like to say before we do it that we hope we do not offend. All right, now just one Very moment. Nice Let me prepare for it. Let me throw out the bananas here. here. <laughs> I'm going to put them right here. All right, fellas, you ready? Okay, on you. Go ahead, Ringo. Hit it. Here we go. All right. There we go. Bananas. Ah. Bye, 
Stupid. Yeah, I'm so happy you played that. I don't know. There's something about the banana dance. You should people should look it up. There's also because he has a hand gesture, which is like the funniest thing. I don't know why I think it's so funny. You know, I think one writer, I think it was Fred Graver, said to me, Chris Elliott. You know, kind of played the Letterman's id. He was a reflection of Letterman saying the things that Letterman wasn't going to say, and because Letterman liked him so much, he convinced Letterman to do some of the earliest uh, hour-long theme shows, you know, like the custom-made show where the audience could vote on, you know, who the guests would be and what what what, what they would wear, et cetera, or the 360-degree show, which is a Randy Cohen idea where they rotated the camera 360 degrees throughout the whole show. So halfway through, it was upside down. So, so Chris Elliott played a big part in the kind of increasing the ambition, the conceptual ambition of that show. Jason, do you think that Letterman was diminished in the later years of his career when he was almost entirely alienated from his staff and his material? Or do you think that he found a new voice that was different? Without, without sort of copying out, I think both, of the, both are true. Um, I think his comedically, his show became less ambitious. At the same time, he had some of his greatest moments um, because his show became more about extemporaneous conversation uh, or, or monologues and co- long conversation. And if you look at several of his most important moments, including, I would say, most famously, his response to 9-11, in which he really stood out among all the broadcasters, you know, is a high point. You know, he has several moments, I think, in his last 10 years where the strength is not the irony, the sarcasm, the the concept, but the, you know, kind of emotional and deeply felt statements that he's making. Do you have any thoughts about how many Spider-Mans fit in a Jamba Juice? <laughs> no, but I like I the question. Oh, look, we're out of time, Jason. We're just going to have to play some on the uh, on our way out the door. We'll play how many Spider-Mans fit in a Jamba Juice. You don't have to have any insights about it. People, I wrote a whole essay about it one time. People can go listen to that. <laughs> Thank you, really. <laughs> Jason Zinnemann's wonderful book is called Letterman, The Last Giant of Late Night. Uh, I could talk about this for four hours, uh, <laughs> but um, our, our, our kind engineer at NPR New York has to go home to his family. Um, so we'll have to leave it there. Thank you so much for making the time, Jason. Thank you so much. This was, this was really fun. Jason Zinneman. Letterman, The Last Giant of Late Night is in bookstores now. I loved reading it. Uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful and very insightful book. We'll have a link to it on our website. And while you're on the Internet, do yourself a favor. Look up how many Spider-Mans fit in a Jamba Juice. Just type that into the Internet and then enjoy it. It's going to make your life a lot better. Every week on Bullseye, we like to wrap things up with a pop culture recommendation from me, your host. It's called The Outshot. So comic books have come a long way. So far, actually, that maybe it is too cliched for me to actually say that phrase or for me to say that they're not just for kids anymore. But seriously, comic books, they're not just for kids anymore. In the mid-'80s, that sentiment was actually a lot less cliched. In fact, it was pretty fresh, at least in the mainstream. Fresh enough that comics creators who wrote for grown-ups, especially the ones writing about superheroes, still had to prove that they were serious every time out. A lot of the time, being serious meant piling darkness on top of violence on top of darkness. Nihilism was the name of the game. It showed you were an adult. No batarangs here, nothing fun allowed, just real serious guys standing on the corner of skyscrapers being very serious or standing alone at the moon gazing down at earth being philosophical or and this was popular slaughtering a bunch of dudes with blood flying everywhere because that is definitely not for kids okay they can't handle how edgy it is and into the middle of all this darkness and edginess and whatever came a character named concrete maybe the gentlest half man half rock hybrid in comic book history. He was created in 1986 by an artist named Paul Chadwick, part of a sort of vanguard of independent-minded superhero authors. In his origin story, Concrete starts out as a regular man, a speechwriter for a senator. 
He goes on a hiking trip, and he ends up getting captured by aliens. They put his mind into a big, rounded stone body, sort of like a cross between the thing from the Fantastic Four and the Michelin Man. Anyway, he he escapes the aliens. He finds his old boss, the senator. They cut a deal with the government. He'll go by the name Concrete, and he'll sever his connections to his former life. He won't mention the aliens in public, and he'll be a sort of mascot for American exceptionalism. Now, listen, I I know, as I say this out loud, I, I realize that it sounds kind of like every other superhero ever, but Concrete is a very different kind of story. Beyond those aliens who created them, and they basically don't come back, there's nothing unusual in Concrete's world. In most superhero book worlds, two costumed laser dudes can lay waste to a city's entire downtown, and that's normal. In Concrete's world, normal is he has to make himself a chair out of cinder blocks so he can sit down because he's tired. Concrete is a quiet, thoughtful book. It's mostly just about a normal man trying to figure out what to do with himself in these incredibly strange circumstances. How to deal with the physical implications of having a body made out of rocks. How to deal with the loneliness that comes out of that. And Concrete's loneliness isn't fortress of solitude, operatic cape-waving angst. It's like take a quiet walk in the woods loneliness, actual loneliness. Concrete struggles with what we'd all struggle with if we were suddenly transformed into a semi-invulnerable, enormous rock man. Basically, what now? How do I live if I'm like other people, but also abundantly different? At one point, Concrete goes on The Tonight Show and just straight up asks the audience what he should do. He takes letters. Someone writes that he should be a warrior for peaceful resistance, an immovable force in the fight for social justice, which sounds pretty good, but it also sounds like a big burden. Somebody writes desperate for Concrete to fix her abusive spouse. Kind of thinks that's beyond what his powers can do, and he sends her a hotline phone number crazies, write him crazy stuff. He gets personal appearance offers. As he wrestles with the possibilities and the burdens of his new life, it's maybe the most compelling story about a guy opening mail you'll ever read. Concrete wants to return to being a writer, but he can't hold a pen. He decides to try climbing Mount Everest, He takes a role in a movie. He joins an environmental extremist group. And he wrestles with the sad reality that he no longer has genitals. I mean, I know that sounds like a goof, but can you imagine? Concrete is a wordy comic book. We hear our hero's internal monologue a lot. It's lyrical. I wouldn't say it's poetic. The prose has a kind of stiff quality. It's a stiff quality that feels right with a hero who's more of a thinker than a doer. A square nerd trapped in a superhero's body. There are a lot of comics about longing for human connection, about social alienation. Comic making can be a lonely art. Paul Chadwick has said that concrete reflects his own slightly awkward adolescence. But unlike so many comic heroes, concrete doesn't turn his teenage pain into vengeful violence. He's gentle, contemplative, and he isn't particularly self-pitying either. In one story, he wades into the sea, not for an operatic suicide, but just to watch the fish. Chadwick's been drawing concrete on and off for 30 years. He's never lost his melancholic touch. His big, stiff, well-meaning hero still packs an emotional punch still suggests to us what we'd do if we came to a crossroads, if everything started over. What we do to connect to the world around us. Even when he's just walking along the ocean floor, watching the fish. That's my outshot. 
That's all for this week's Bullseye. Bullseye is recorded at MaximumFun.org headquarters overlooking MacArthur Park in beautiful Los Angeles, California. Wow, have we got a park update for you this week. We saw a guy swimming in the lake, fully swimming in the lake. And then after he was swimming in the lake, he had his arms up on the edge of the lake like you would do if you were at a pool party. Very distressing. Shows produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. He had help from Christian Duenas. Our production fellows at MaximumFun.org are Kara Hart and Nick Liao. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher. All our interstitial music is provided by Dan Wally. Our theme music was recorded by the Go Team and provided to us by Memphis Industries. Special thanks this week to Neil Rauch at NPR in New York who, uh, because I was having so much fun talking with Jason Zinneman about our mutual fave, David Letterman, uh, we accidentally made Neil stay 20 minutes late uh, after work. So uh, thanks, Neil. We, we appreciate that. If you'd like to hear any of our past shows, all of them are free. Grab them at MaximumFun.org or in your favorite podcast software. And while you're at it, check out the Bullseye page on Facebook. Got the best from this week's show and more. Dumb internet stuff we've been passing around the office. Maybe we'll tip you off to an interview we've got coming up down the road and and, uh, great articles that we've been reading. Not just dumb stuff. Good stuff. You can also grab every Bullseye interview on YouTube. Search for the Bullseye with Jesse Thorne channel and you 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 can share those on your Facebook and whatnot. We appreciate when you do that. I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.